You're listening to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia France. And I'm Serena Chen. Today, ethical consumption. What does it look like? And is it even possible? One of the things we see clued in people trying to do these days is ethical consumption. Whether that's not eating red meat, reading up on your brand like we talked about in the fashion episode, or deleting Uber, it's not clear how best to vote with your wallet to help create the world we want. I definitely ascribe to the idea that capitalism begets individualism and that while, as individuals, the only thing we can reliably affect is our own choices, it's also not like our fault when things go wrong. Sure, I've stopped buying Nestle products and that's at least partly because of their role in the Californian droughts, but I haven't gone full off-grid free living hippie, which raises the question of whether I'm really doing everything that I can. So I think a good place to start is, Serena, what does ethical consumption look like to you? I think it has a lot to do with what ethics looks like to you. So to me, it means it means not creating more harm than if I wasn't here. And I think on the realistic scale of things, that's all I like. That's the best I can really hope for is that things are going on in the world as a as a constant almost. And I. I am an individual in semi-control of my own choices, and the best thing that I can hope for is to not add or create more harm, whether that be to humans or to other animals or to the environment, to our future generations. Yeah, because my, my question was then was going to be, like, do you prioritise one of those, or is it just a general, like, do best to do no harm? Um, what I prioritise, instead of prioritising like the thing that I'm not harming, I want to prioritize how much impact a specific action or even non-action can take. So, and also how easy it is for me to do, because the easier an action is for me to take, the less quote unquote cost that is for me to, you know, change my habits, change my way of life. And the more, the more likely it is that I will keep doing that. It's kind of like, I like to think of, um, small ethical choices as kind of like curating good habits like waking up early in the morning or I don't know freaking taking a walk once in a while (laughs) is that the the easier it is for you to go and do that the more likely it is that you're going to keep it up every single day for the rest of your life but if you set really unrealistic goals for yourself like um tomorrow I'm going to become a vegan that's not realistic and because it's not going to be long lasting it's not going to have the effect that I want it to have so I try and focus my efforts on things that I can do for the long term and that's simple things like I don't know I buy secondhand clothes pretty much 90% of the time usually it's pants that I buy new from Kmart because I can't find pants that fit me but <laughs> everything else I try and buy from Safeway and it's it's great and it's a small, easy thing to do that means that that I can keep up over the long term, that I don't have to even think about. What else is there? Well, you deleted Uber recently. I did delete Uber recently, and I did that because, well, I installed Uber because it was usually cheaper, and it was easier, and it was convenient. And I, I could have deleted Uber a lot sooner, because it was very clear that they were not not a very nice company let's put it that way um they were not very nice to reporters who uh did not have good things to say about them i'm, I'm putting this very lightly by the way they're horrible they're just yeah uber like at the risk of 
In our opinion, that yeah. makes it fine. Uber dicks. <laughs> They're dicks. And, <laughs> and like, I could have deleted it so much sooner, um, but I, I didn't because that convenience and that price point was, I just couldn't argue with that. But now, like, I'm in a steady job in a city, which means I get paid quite a lot more than the median wage for New Zealanders, which is 25k, by the way. Um, yeah, I get paid that. It's um, it's the median household wage too. Oh, that's yeah. rough. Yeah, I know. So in realizing that, it's like you know what? I can afford a taxi. I can afford the inconvenience because, like, I am now in a stable job. I'm rather very privileged, and I can handle life without Uber. But maybe someone like a student, they can't necessarily. Well, they could, but. And I think depending on the city you're in as well, because like certainly yeah. my taxi experiences in Wellington were excellent. Like I had really great yeah. taxi drivers. In Melbourne, I have universally had terrible taxi experiences, and apparently in New York, the taxi companies are run by the mafia. So <laughs> there's like there's lots of different pressures weighing on you, and you're sort of in an instance where the pressures are such that you can relatively easily make the choice mm. to take taxis rather than to take Uber. Yeah. And the, the more of those small, easy choices that we make every single day, I do believe they will add up and they will in time be more effective than to say, I am suddenly tomorrow going to, you know, change my entire life and then fail and then go back to exactly what I was doing before. It's about yeah. curating habits and it's about slowly adding in ethical choices to your daily life. That's kind of the trick behind um, New Year's resolutions and stuff as well, eh? Yeah, yeah. It's just to make them achievable. Like, set low bars for yourself, essentially, <laughs> and then work your way up slowly. Yeah. I know we've, um, we've certainly talked about Uber a bit, I think, off-air. Mm. In the context that, like, I'm not ignoring all of the, like, reports of really shitty things that have come out of that company. The fact that to be an Uber driver, you have to own your own car of a particular standard, I think... Mm cuts poorer people out of being part of that market. Whereas taxi companies like may in some places, depending on the laws surrounding licensing, but broadly like you get provided your own car and like, yeah. you don't have to have a car of like that relatively high standard that Uber requires. And I think like that allows people who have less income, who have less savings, who might be recent immigrants to work with that. Mm. And the, the really interesting about Uber um, and I like to point this out to the free market bros who, uh, <laughs> who are like, oh, you know, Uber is succeeding because free market, you know, they're, they're doing better than everyone else. They're simply providing a better product than the taxi companies, which I agree with. They are mm. providing a better product, but they are not doing better than the taxi companies because they are losing money every oh, single yeah. year. They are losing millions of dollars and they are not profitable. Like, this is the fact of Uber and Lyft and all these other gig economy, the, you know, the ones where you press a button on your phone and people deliver food to your house. Like, these apps are not profitable. And what they're betting on, they're betting on one of two things or both. Uh, number one is that they keep running on venture capitalist funding. Mm-hmm. And then they eventually hold monopolies in all the major cities and push out the local taxi companies that are there and once they hold that monopoly, they can up their prices. And number two, self-driving cars, which we'll talk yeah. about later as well. 
but like this is this is the thing with the whole gig economy with the sharing economy quote unquote um thing is that it's it's really not a marketplace people talk about it's, it as if it's a marketplace but it's yeah. it's not and anil dash who wrote a really great piece and he gave a great talk at webstock as well detailing the fact that these economies look like economies but they are not real marketplaces because the people who control these marketplaces like Google or like Amazon or eBay or Uber, they sell themselves as a, a library or an index of things that you can go to and you can connect to other people and connect to other websites. And they're just the library. You know, they're just there to, to help you out. But then once they have this monopoly, they can start introducing their own products, their own people, their own websites. And that gives themselves a wildly unfair advantage over mm. the people that they were a marketplace for in the first place. I'll put a link to the show notes um, about his piece. It's it's incredibly fascinating. Uber and Lyft, I think, both kind of act in a similar way a lot of the time, and that like they are kind of like laying siege to different cities, mm. and like once they've sort of driven everyone else out, they'll sort of take over. And I think a really interesting um, way that that played out was seen in Austin where mm. I think the local government was going to introduce rates or something, just like something super minor that Uber and Lyft could probably have just dealt with. Yeah. And so they left. Yeah. And they've been threatening to leave and threatening to leave. And the government was like, no, we're still going to introduce these rates. And so they just withdrew out of Austin. Like crying toddlers. Yeah. And like, there has been some impacts in places like Austin, like, um, there were some interesting interviews with people who work at bars who were saying like, now we actually have to like call a taxi for someone or they have to make sure there's a sober driver rather than mm. like, you know, like just making sure that they get an Uber, get home, it'll be fine. And it's like, well, mm. I mean, that's a broader problem with drinking culture. Like it's yeah. not necessarily an impact of like Uber left and now everything is terrible. Um, yeah. But they're also dealing with it. Like that's, yeah. Yeah. And the thing that we have to realize here is that, like, the fact is Uber and Lyft, they do provide a better product in terms of actual getting a taxi, hailing a taxi, that whole thing. And the problem isn't the local taxi companies. The problem is they just need to develop a better product. And that's solvable. In fact, that's sold. And we just need to get, I don't know, the same kind of features that Uber and Lyft provide things like you know knowing how far away your taxi is from you mm. and i mean that's just, partly the reason that uber sprung up right is that yeah. taxi companies that had that opportunity for a good five or ten years and had not taken mm. it and like that's one of the reasons that like particularly when uber first started before all of this like horrible news came out like i was kind of okay with it even though like it was you know without a doubt harming you know, quite poor people who had might have had jobs at taxi companies because the overall management of a taxi company had chosen not to develop apps, not to have that, like, not to integrate with Google Maps. Like, I got a taxi from the airport, like, in Melbourne once, and I told the guy where I lived, and I was like, yep, just put it into your GPS. And he was like, no, no, it's fine. I know the way. And he took me, like, four blocks out of my way. God. And it was like... <laughs> 10 o'clock at night I'd just been traveling for like yeah. 10 hours and I'm just like I'm just gonna pay you so I can leave yeah and that made me so angry yeah that's why I didn't delete uber for a long time yeah. as well. 
But I think I think we are at a point where the taxi companies are realizing they need to change. Yeah, and well, um, so hopefully they'll push that through. Shebar has uh, sprung up in um, Sydney and Melbourne now. I think, which is it's Uber, but for women. Um, oh. So it was started by a woman in Sydney, and uh, it's all female drivers and riders. Um, cool. They're paying like the drivers eighty five percent of their fares. One percent of every fare goes to charities. Like you can come with like pre booked baby capsules and toddler seats if you need to. Like it's being kind of awesome. dis- yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like it will possibly be better than Uber. I say hopefully, <laughs> knowing <laughs> that possibly all of the gig economy is broken. I say hopefully that it might be better than Uber. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of the gig economy being a garbage fire <laughs> it's like airtasker has recently started like being advertised in australia i see the ads a lot when i'm in the gym and i just like i feel so broken about it are yeah. you googling it yeah yeah <laughs> it's like you hire someone to do a thing mm. so instead of like if your tv breaks and you hire a for example qualified electrician to fix it because electrical like qualifications are really meaningful and you shouldn't just order someone off the internet to like fix your TV. You just, you just get someone off the internet to come to your house and fix your TV. It's fine. It's fine. It's mm. fine. Yeah. I'm, I'm really torn about the whole gig economy thing as well. Cause the thing that we have to realize is that these apps are optimized for people who are relatively well off and yeah. have free time to earn a little bit more on the side kind of thing. They are not optimized for the poor who really need decent wages and a decent living. Yeah, because like because they employ people as contractors or they do that weird thing where it's like, you work for us, but technically you're setting up your own business as an entrepreneur right now. Mm. Um, they pay people like way under minimum wage, particularly here in Australia where the minimum wage is very high, but like that's really good if you can only get like 20 hours of work a week. And that's just like... That seems bad and wrong to me. Like, the minimum wage exists for a reason, as much as, like, your libertarian friends might say it doesn't. Like, the minimum wage exists so that essentially people can have, like, a standard of living that doesn't put them in poverty, right? Like, Mm. and when the gig economy starts off and says, like, oh, no, you're a contractor. You get, like, $5 an hour for helping this person set up their Wi-Fi. And we're just going (laughs) to ignore the fact that you have to travel four hours each way to get to this one job. Yeah, right. that's just, that's a garbage fire. It really is. And, I mean, uh, when you look at the incentives and, like, who the system is really optimized for and who has the leverage here and who has no leverage, the people who have no leverage are the people doing the work. Because in a, in, a, in a usual, I don't know, in the traditional way of work, you work for an employer, you provide them with some set of skills, some service and the employer pays you. And it's like, there'll be a negotiation between you and your employer of like how much your work is worth and et cetera. And like, that's where you reach the balance. But in this gig economy, you are never in a place to negotiate ever. In, in the traditional setup, you, uh, you're in this like tumultuous place of and looking around for things and like trying to find the best work for you before you get employed. And once you know you are employed for however long you are, even if it's contracting, um, then you know you can settle down and you can do your work. And you are in a place of leverage where you can say, 
you know, I'm doing great work for you. Pay me more or, I don't know, give me or more benefits or whatever. Provide me more yeah. flexible hours or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but in the gig economy, you are never, ever in a place to negotiate. You are never, ever in a place of leverage or any small amount of power because you are always, always competing. Um, in the design world, there's a there's a marketplace called, I think, Fiverr or something. And I've heard place, of that. Yeah, it's a place where graphic designers can go and do like these $5 jobs for people. What makes it really terrible is not only do the people doing it earn little to nothing, and they don't even get really good experience because the um, the client is wanting something cheap and not necessarily like of the highest quality, just something cheap, something fast, something good enough. Uh, the work that gets outputted is, isn't even helping the person who's doing it because they're probably not very happy with it. That and the gig economy in whatever industry you're in drives down the value of your own industry. You know, if the entirety of graphic design was a gig economy, which a lot of it is, it drives down the value of design. The taxi industry, a lot of that is on the gig economy. It drives down the value of having a ride, just being able to hail one whenever you can. And I don't know if, like, if, if you're in a place of, in this industry, I don't know if that's something you want to do. You don't want to drive down the value. Yeah, no, I think that's fair enough. Like, I think about the value of work quite a bit because, like, mm. when I was um, leaving home and, like, you know, going to university and stuff, my mom told me, I think maybe even before I left home, my mom told me something really important, and that was, like, if you work for free, people will see your work as worthless. Yeah. You need to tell someone what your work is worth. And then, like, if you genuinely believe, like, that you don't want to charge for it because it's a charity or they have no money or whatever, say that you're doing it pro bono. Don't just be like, oh, yeah, I'll work for free because people will be like, well, then your time is worth, no- worth nothing and they won't respect you for it. Um, I think that's really valuable. Uh, something else I also have to do, which I also have to do in our fashion episode, um, I've looked up Airtasker and they actually look really good um, in that they are saying, like, you know, like, if a handyman who is a professional, like, that you'll be paying $60 an hour for a job. Um, mm, good. And I think that's really wonderful. Their ads certainly do not make it look like that. Their ads make it look like the worst part of the gig economy, which is where I got the misconception from, and that severely concerned me. But looking at their website, it actually looks like they pay people a very legitimate wage. Um, I think the other thing I really want to talk about a little bit, which will hopefully be very brief, is like the concept of a minimum wage, because I think a lot of people don't mm. understand why we have it and why it gets raised sometimes and like what that means. And I like again, I've had like interesting my mom has told me interesting things about her perceptions of it. But essentially okay. like to have a minimum wage is to prevent an employer from hiring as many people as they would have with a lower minimum wage. And that sounds bad, but if the employer can hire like 50 people for $4 an hour or 20, like 20 people for $8 an hour, Mm. hiring 20 people for $8 an hour, like will generally do more good in the community because like those people on $8 an hour can live and pay rent and like just kind of exist and, do good yeah and the reason like the minimum wage is like raised generally every couple of years in New Zealand if not more Mm. regularly than that is that because inflation exists and so like everything gets more expensive 
And if your wage is stagnant for people like working at Macca's or working in a supermarket, it is. Like, if you work somewhere where you start off minimum wage and then they get upskilled and then get, like, a wage increase, like, that's fine. That might track with inflation. But for people doing those entry-level jobs that might not be going anywhere else, like, they don't get the benefit of like being able to track with inflation they don't get the benefit of being able to pay more for groceries or power or water or rent yeah. um, and so increasing minimum wage every couple of years essentially like kind of serves to offset that um yeah and on a on a macro scale having disposable income is good for the economy yes so it's if you're one of those, you know, neoliberal dude bros, like, you just care about the economy, you just want the economy to be good, who cares if people are starving and it's all right, it's all right. Like, well, <laughs> I mean, how you think? I, I understand where that comes from, because, like, I yeah, think a lot yeah. of those people genuinely think that a healthy economy means the bulk of the people will be okay eventually. Absolutely. And, like, this is this is the argument, is that it's not just about you know, we need to raise the minimum wage so people can live. It's about we need to raise the minimum wage so people can live and have disposable income. So when people have disposable income, they go out and they buy stuff. And (laughs) And like, and some of that money goes into things like GST, a higher minimum wage means higher income tax, like, yes, which means more healthcare. It's just generally better for the economy because there's more money going around. And when more money is moved, I mean, it. when I first read about this, it seemed really silly to me. The fact that I could give someone $5 and then they could give someone $5 and that $5 could come back to me. And while the net gain of this loop is zero, the GDP goes up. When I first read about that, that was really confusing to me. I thought that was really dumb. But if you think about it, Money is just a medium. Money is just a medium in which you transfer value. And if I'm really good at baking pies and you're really good at making lemonade, but I've got 50 pies and I can't eat them all, and you've got 20 buckets of lemonade and you can't drink it all, and we switch, and I give you $5 worth of pie and you give me $5 worth of lemonade, the value in the system has gone up because we've both gotten something that we wanted. And we've gotten rid of something that we weren't so hot about, even though the value that was exchanged was exactly the same. And so this is why disposable income and just money moving around the economy in general is really good because people are getting what they want, what they need, and people are getting rid of the things that they have excess of. And that's the that's the general idea. Yes. Like I'm just trying to remember like one of the web comics I read like made a wonderful call where it was like GDP is measured from like the number of transactions people make to each other. And so mm. I'm just going to found an island nation where people transact each other like a million dollars <laughs> as quickly as possible. Um, which well, is I mean, GDP ridiculous. does have its fallings. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I think when you don't try to game the system, like GDP works quite well as the measure of like the health of an economy. I'm just like, I think... The one interesting thing I have with minimum wage is that when, you might remember this as well, when the minimum wage went from $8 an hour to $12 an hour, Mm. I had this very interesting conversation with my mom where she said, well, basically everyone who gets paid $24 an hour currently has had the relative value of their, like, work decrease because they've gone from earning three times minimum wage to earning twice it. Well, in the short term, yes. I don't have, like, 
a lot of sympathy for people who are earning like $24 an hour because at this point I was like 15. I was like, screw yeah. you, I'm on minimum wage. Like, yeah. you can deal with earning twice as much as me, I'm sure. <laughs> um, I understand in the context of like professionals, like that well, could possibly be quite frustrating. Yeah, I mean, it is frustrating in the short term because the relative value of your work does, but because it trickles up <laughs> yeah it, it does the trickle up economy <laughs> let's make this a thing well it is a thing that's a th- like you when you raise the living standards of your poorest in time you raise the living standards for everyone because you know there's more money going around and the thing is that poor people cost money to the system to to government and when you just give them money and you make sure that like they don't have to worry about paying rent and putting food on the table and like paying their power bill. Suddenly it's like they have extra mental capacity yeah. to work oh, and God. to like add things to the economy. So, and this is the whole idea of welfare, right? Yeah. This yeah, is the yeah. whole idea of welfare. There have been like so many studies that are just like worrying about money has the same effect as like missing a night's of sleep. Like it basically yeah. removes your ability to think in the long term. And boy, oh boy, am I living that life right now. Like, whew. yeah. I mean, okay, um, what is your opinion on universal basic income? Oh, I am, like, so here for it. Mm -hmm. It's, um, I think there are some tweaks that need to be made rather than just providing everyone a universal basic income, basically to encourage people to work. So that, like, one of the issues with um, welfare in New Zealand that I've experienced through my friends and, like, parents of my friends is that there are some instances where you get more from staying on the benefit than you do from working. Mm. And that makes literally zero sense. So I think there needs to be like a tweak in universal basic income that says if you're working like, say, 20 hours a week or more, like regardless of your situation, because there are many, many places that do not have a minimum wage for disabled people. And I am very angry about that. Like you will be getting over that universal basic income. Like you won't be getting as much of it cut off as you are earning, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, because I think like I think people working is generally good, like for their mental well-being is certainly like Mm. what I've seen in like my peers in New Zealand. Like when people are on the benefit, they can get super depressed. And part of that is like being stressed about money all the time. And part of that Mm. is the fact that winds yells at you whenever you go in there, even if you applied for like 50 jobs, like it's pretty shitty to be on the benefit. And like, Mm. I think universal basic income would take a lot of that stress off but then also encouraging people to go out and work would like also provide that so like you don't have to but if you do like you get a benefit from it and that might encourage people to go and do it and go out and meet new people because I think like work both has a value in the economic sense but if you have a job where like the people around you aren't total shits like (laughs) it has a very real like emotional value like it has that community bonding that sense of fulfillment associated with it and a sense of purpose because yeah. I guess, like, with all of the the problems that we talk about around the economy, a lot of it comes down to the fact that some people, not some people, everyone, our fundamental worry is, do I have a roof over my head? Like, can I not starve today? Do I have electricity? Do I have basic communications? And the whole idea of the universal basic income is that if we can cover that off, then a whole bunch of our problems are sold. Um, what I am worried about and what I do think the, the tricky thing with universal basic income is say you give every single person 
um, I don't know, like 15, 20k a year. Mm-hmm. And suddenly people have 15, 20k a year extra. What is stopping landlords from doubling everyone's rent? You know, that kind of thing. Like, what is stopping everyone from suddenly raising the prices of everything and having the exact same problems fall into place? So Yeah, it's what we see in Dunedin whenever the student allowance or the student loan gets increased, yeah. rent increases. And it's... Oh, it makes me so angry. So I guess, like, the idea and the concept of universal basic income, I really like. And I do believe that being able to survive is a human right. Mm. Um, and not only is it a human right, but making sure all of your citizens survive means that you have more workers in your economy. You have more people adding to your economy. Like, life is better for everyone. So, and I mean, I think even the alteration that means with a universal basic income, people don't have to make the decision between money and their mental health. Because, mm. like, yeah, like I've sort of alluded to, like, I've known a lot of people have gone on the benefit and I've had to, like, even have appointments at WINS. And it is so horrible. And I know people who have said, I would rather not get money this week. Like, I would rather, yeah. like, not eat so I can pay rent than go in there and take the hit to my mental health that that will require of me. Because I also cannot afford to go to a counsellor or a doctor. Like, yeah. even that change, like, that would mean so much. <laughs> yeah. I have applied for the benefit in the two, three months where I was like, I have no idea what's going on in my life right now, and I can't, for the life of me, find a job. Uh, And it was, I don't know, the process was straightforward, but it was also, there was like an air of shame. Yeah, did they tell you to get a factory job? No. They told me to get a factory job. I was like, but I have a qualification. And they're like, yeah, work in a factory with it. I'm like, no, no, you misunderstand me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was also like... I think I particularly hated my wins appointment because I had basically got a job. I just hadn't like signed the contract yet. And because I'd already applied for the benefit and like waited the month or whatever cooling off period they require, like I like, I'll see this through just in case everything falls through. Mm. And I went in and I was like, look, um, I basically have a job. I have like the final interview and contract signing like on Friday, which is three days away. I'm just here to tick all the boxes and I'll cancel it. Like, because I'll probably get the job. And then my case manager was so mean to me, I just cried in front of her for, like, half an hour. It was great. Yeah. I think, like, um, because the... Is it, like, Switzerland they're trying the universal basic income? Um, So UBI has been tested in a whole bunch of small cities in Northern America. And, I mean, let's be honest, probably, probably that area, Switzerland, Netherlands, Finland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Somewhere um, in the nice bit of Europe. <laughs> in, in the beautiful utopia uh, that is the Scandinavian <laughs> countries. Oh, the incredibly ethnically homogenous and very rich Scandinavian... Continue, yeah, continue. Yeah, I, I was about to say, it was like, if only every other country had oil money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Or herring yeah. money. Yeah. But, yeah, it has been um, trialled. The problem with those trials were that they were not long enough, they were not big enough on scale. So while they were pretty successful, like, it was not enough evidence to convince other cities to do the same. I mean, like, and I've thought about this a lot, and it's going to be my, um, the bill that, you know, starts me on my parcel was becoming Prime Minister. So no <laughs> one steal this, TM, TM, TM. Um, <laughs> is that 
I would want to make the benefit a lot easier to get. I would also want to put it like essentially contingent on four to eight hours of community work per week. And that's Mm. simply because of the experience I've had, like knowing people have been on the benefit and trying to get on the benefit. It's like, if you make it easy to get people who have disabilities, people with mental illness that might not, might not be diagnosed or they might not be able to afford to go to a doctor to get a medical certificate. They don't have to worry about trying to get the disabilities. They can just like go through that process, be like, okay, like this is, this isn't, so difficult I would rather starve than do it basically Mm. I think that's good and then the four hours of community work a week you should make it so that it can be stuff like you go and help out at an animal shelter or you do some like phone calling for Amnesty International or something like that like you work with people you feel like you're contributing and you make connections that can start you on the path to getting a job yeah I really like the idea of getting people out there and yeah. meeting new people. But I also think having things like um, things that you can do from home would be really good for people in rural communities Absolutely. that might not have that like network of non-profit companies that they can go and work for, but it still connects them to people. It still gives them like something to put on their CV. Because something you see like a lot is that people can't get a job because every single job requires like five years of experience. Oh my God. And so having that like that little bit of community work and like four to eight hours means like a lot of people can do it without like yeah. the nonprofits being like essentially like oversaturated. Like you have something on your CV finally. You have a reference that isn't like your high school principal, right? Like that's so valuable. And yeah, that's how I'm going to become prime minister, basically. That's fantastic. <laughs> You'd vote for me. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Oh, we've got like way off topic of ethical consumption, but I think like the broader conversation surrounding like, I think it's relevant. Yeah. yeah, Economic health is like also quite important with regards to ethical consumption, not just because like, I like it when the money's happy, but because Mm. realistically, and I think this is something really important to remember when talking to people who are more right wing than you, like, is that they don't just want the money to be happy. They Mm. genuinely think, and like, this is true, like to a large extent that a healthy economy is the way to a healthy and happy populace. And they just like differ in how they think we should get to that healthy and happy populace. Mm. And I think there's a lot of, almost I feel like increasingly divisive discourse in New Zealand surrounding like labor and national when realistically like national has done some shitty things, but they also genuinely think they're doing the right thing. Oh, yeah. And that's super important to remember when you talk to people. Because, like, just calling someone and being like, you're evil because (laughs) this particular politician did something that I disagreed with. It's like, well, they're not evil. They they just differ in how they think we should get there. And if you ask them why they think that that alteration will result in the desired effect, you might learn something and, like, understand why people vote national, basically. Oh, absolutely. Like, this is why I have, um, I have arguments for and against different things from a solely economic perspective because I don't know it's like we all as a human society on the whole we all want the same things for each other we all want each other to be happy and well-fed and to be fulfilled in life um because you know happy people around you just makes you happier it's good for everyone but we speak different languages and how to get there And I think as long as you know how to speak their language, and for a lot of um, the people who I speak to, it is a purely economical language, then you can, you can learn how to basically like get on their wavelength because 
both of you want the same thing. Both of you don't want people to be starving in the world. But because you're speaking a different language, maybe some things are more prioritized than others. Yeah. And it, I don't know, like, as, as long as, for me at least, as long as I can reframe my arguments in a purely economical sense and, for, and have that make sense, then, then we can get on the same level and I can, I can speak to them and it's, it's totally fine. Yeah, I actually, I, um, I want to make an impassioned plea to our listeners. Uh, there is literally no point in being a diehard supporter of your particular political party. Oh, um, yeah. I'd like to say, especially in Australia. Um, but, like, even so in New Zealand, like, just don't, don't be that guy that <laughs> says, like, you voted for another party, therefore you must be stupid or evil or bad in some way. Like, you are doing nothing for the party that you support so vehemently when you do that. You are mm. just making political discourse shittier. So please do not do the thing. I think this is a, a specific problem of the left, actually. Um, oh, is... there are people on the right that do that. <laughs> oh, people on the right absolutely do that. Um, but maybe it's because like, I mostly hang out and talk to and I'm around people who are more left-leaning, I definitely noticed it a lot, is um, people calling out instead of calling in. And I think it's, yeah. I mean, it is a really, really difficult thing to navigate because if you call someone out for it, then you're showing all of the other minorities and people affected by whatever action that you support them. And that's incredibly powerful. So mm. on a on a public forum like like Twitter, calling out, especially if you're calling out a really famous, well-known public figure, that can be really helpful. However, if, like, you're calling out your friend or you're calling out, you know, some guy who no one really knows about, that won't be as helpful as if you call them in, as if you, uh, if you pull them aside privately in private messaging or even better in real life over a beer or beverage of your choice and you said, hey, I think you're a good person and I think you would want me, you, you'd want to know if you did like a dick move and I just wanted to let you know that this thing that you did or said is kind of a dick move and here's why. Um, that is so much more helpful and so much more effective and so much more valuable to that specific person than if you were just to get on a, you know, a loudspeaker and say, this person is a dick. Yeah. Look at it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I think as well, like if you think someone holds a shitty viewpoint, I think it's often very valuable to ask them and to like double check that. Cause like yeah. I had this wonderful experience on Facebook the other day when someone assumed I was anti-vaccines and then, like, just, like, yelled at me for a long time. And eventually I had to, like, mute the conversation because I was so upset. Because, like, I'm not anti-vaccines. Like, I'm a geneticist. I've had, like, so many vaccines because I really like feeling like no disease will ever kill me. Like, mm. but because I'd said, like, I don't... Um, there was some comment someone in New Zealand made about how if parents don't get their children vaccinated, those children should be banned from early childhood education. And I was like, well, I don't think it's really appropriate to punish like children's like educational outcomes for a choice that they have had no way to consent to. 
Like, mm. there is no way those children were engaged in those discussions. I Like, early childhood education has an incredible, like, impact on your long-term outcomes. I don't think this is ever going to be an appropriate thing. And then, like, this one person, like, jumped down my throat and was just like, vaccines are so important and, like, people will die if they don't get vaccinated. I'm like, no, I am aware of that. And she's like, let me explain herd immunity to you. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> here we are. And it was it was a little bit surreal because it was a woman doing it. And I'm very used to getting this from men. And I was just like, wait, what's happening? <laughs> why, is this, why, why is there a woman doing this to me? But it was, like, it was awful. And it's because she didn't say, like, okay, like, I see that. But, do like, do you think vaccines are necessary good? Because, like... I think the best way to do this is to like be very hardline about it. Hmm. And I'd be like, yeah, I think that vaccines are a necessary good. But like there's the point where you're like, I think vaccines are really good. And the point where you're like, the state should force everyone to get vaccinated. And there's a point like a little further down the road where you're like, maybe the state should just raise all of our children. And like, I'm not a fan of a slippery slope argument, but I think people who think that the state should force everyone to get vaccinated often cannot very clearly differentiate why that is different from the state just doing like everything surrounding your children. And that frustrates me. It's something that I have noticed more and more and something that I've been frustrated more and more about online and written only communication in general is just the lack of nuance. Like it's very difficult to put context behind what you're typing out, to put nuance behind what you're Can typing you out. Can you not do that in 140 characters, Serena? No, not at all. It's impossible. <laughs> I have tried. <laughs> and and this is why like I I've been advocating so much uh, just for people to have face-to-face conversations or to have like we're not having a face-to-face conversation, but this is a great conversation because we're coming from a place of good faith. We respect each other and this is a long-form conversation. Like we're we're letting it take take us wherever it goes. And that's that's really important, and you just don't get that online because, you know, people have lives. They've got jobs to do. They've got errands to run, and they don't have time to be sitting down at the computer commenting, like, 500-word comments on Facebook. So, yeah, the you lack say of that. nuance is... <laughs> Debaters definitely have time to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I have noticed. <laughs> it's a, it's a I'm so of... sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, like... The whole internet thing is great for outreach and it's great for signaling to people who otherwise wouldn't have heard it that, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that support them and support their lives and support them as as human beings with full rights. But when it comes to nuanced conversations, it's just the shittiest medium. (laughs) Apart from like, I don't know, pigeons maybe? I don't know. Yeah, Snapchat wouldn't be great for it either. Hey listeners, it's Serena here. We've had such a great conversation this time. We went well over two hours. But that doesn't mean you have to sit through it all. We've split this up into three separate episodes. So take a break, see a friend, live your life. We'll be back with part two soon enough. As always, we love hearing from you. So drop us a line at Casting Interest on Twitter or Facebook. If you haven't yet, why not write us a review? Give us some stars on your podcast feed of choice. Tell a friend about this podcast and have even better conversations with them. Anywho, that was the first part of ethical consumption.
See you all in part two.